this building this morning. I trust that everybody is alive and well and maybe more animated than usual with an extra hour of sleep. Um, Thanks for bringing the church into this building. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and I'm just going to warn you. It's going to get very interesting this morning. Uh, If you've If you've been around before, you probably noticed something a little different about the setup here, Uh, namely that a guy who loves to use his hands does not have one of them to use this morning, Um, and that with an extra hour of sleep and an extra hour to let the caffeine sink in. So this is going to be really interesting. We'll see see what actually happens this morning. Um, The mic that we normally use decided that it was time to go be with Jesus, apparently, and so uh, we're going to use this guy because Amazon Prime couldn't couldn't get the new one here on time. So, um, so you can pray for me, and we'll see what happens with this hand and, and everywhere that it goes to make up for this hand and what it can't do. Um, if you are new this morning, you're here for the first time, uh, we are currently working our way through the book of Hebrews in a series entitled Jesus is Greater. Um, the book of Hebrews, if you've never, never read it before, it's, it's a fascinating book of the Bible. It's very unique. It shows us how the Bible is not some book made up of loosely um, pieced together stories. Rather, the Bible is a, a tapestry of sorts that tells one beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the entire thing. The book of Hebrews puts that interwoven story of redemption on full display. You see all of these Old Testament shadows that find their fulfillment in Jesus as you work your way through this book of the Bible. At its heart, the book of Hebrews is a warning it's an appeal. We've taken a look at a couple of the warnings that are found in this book of the Bible so far. It's, it's written to a group of people declaring, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity, to revert back to the law, to the Old Testament priesthood, to the sacrificial system, to the temple, to the old covenant. This letter is meant to be a word of exhortation, which is why toward the end of the letter in chapter 13, verse 22, you see these words from the author. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's a warning, which is why you have that phrase, bear with. Warnings can be found throughout the entire book. We're going to encounter even more of them as we plow our way through to the finish here. The warnings shape the doctrinal teaching of the book. And the warnings are not just for those within the Christian population who are not really followers of Jesus. The warnings are also God's grace in helping Christ followers persevere to the end. But because we haven't crossed the finish line yet, the author of Hebrews um, declares to us the urgency of continuing to fix our eyes on Jesus And he actually helps us to do that very thing. He doesn't just tell us to see and savor Jesus, but rather he puts this Jesus whom he wants us to see and savor on full display in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. In fact, he's gonna do that very thing for us yet again this morning. Last week, uh, we took a look at one of the more sobering passages found in this book of the Bible, a passage meant to cause us to sense our present need for Jesus and, and to run to him yet again with open arms. In this morning's passage, the author of Hebrews is going to show us the excellencies of Jesus yet again. He's gonna remind us of just who it is to whom we're running with open arms. And so having walked through such a sobering passage last week, if you were here for that, we should find this morning's passage all the more comforting and encouraging to us. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter four. That's where we'll be this morning, beginning in verse 14. We're gonna work our way through chapter five, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you happen to own is difficult to to follow or understand, please take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. 
Let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll jump in, and we'll, we'll get rolling this morning. God, you are majestic. You are filled with splendor and glory and majesty. You are seated upon your throne, sovereignly in control of the universe that you have created. And yet, as we will find, as we dive into your word this morning, your throne is an approachable one, a throne of grace that we can run to to find mercy and grace for help in time of need. And so not only are you transcendent, you're also eminent. You have entered into this world. You've surrounded yourself with everything that makes it sad so that you might relate to us, so that you might live the life that we can never live, so that you might die our death and, and open up the gateway to heaven for us so that we might approach your throne of grace confidently. And I pray that that would be what we would do this morning as we come out of our time together, that we wouldn't just walk away with a better theology of grace and mercy, um, but, but that we would approach you, that we would run to you with open arms and that we would receive the help that you offer us by your grace. Holy Spirit, would you move, would you work in our midst? It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So up to this point, if you've been around for the majority of this series, you know this to be true, that the author of Hebrews has said more than enough about the supremacy and worth of Jesus Christ to overwhelm our minds and hearts for a lifetime. I mean, just go back and read the first three chapters of this book of the Bible. You could sit and soak in that until Jesus returns or the day you die and just be mind blown day after day. But the author of Hebrews is not done just yet. Now we move into another part of the Jesus is greater argument. And he's going to test our patience a little bit because this new argument, this new facet is going to carry us all the way through the, the middle portion of chapter 10. And so we're going to see if the fruit of the Spirit resides in you, if patience is true of you as we continue to, to work through this. But He's going to continue to put uh, these glorious beauties of Jesus Christ on display throughout the course of this one argument that Jesus is the greater and superior high priest. He's going to show us in a number of ways how that's true. He's going to show us that Jesus is sinless, uh, unlike the, the high priest of the Old Testament, and thus he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He's going to show us that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. He's going to show us that Jesus establishes a better covenant in his blood. And we're going to talk about all the implications and the glories that come out of the new covenant established in Jesus' blood. He's going to show us that Jesus ministers in a better tabernacle than the Old Testament priest, a heavenly one. And we'll talk about the implications of that. He's going to show us that Jesus provides a sacrifice to end all sacrifices in the sacrifice of himself. And we're going to talk about the implications of that if you're not a follower of Jesus and the implications of that if you are a follower of Jesus. The, the sheer number of verses devoted to this idea of Jesus as a superior high priest has caused many scholars to argue that, that this is the central theme of the book. Not only does it carry for roughly six chapters, but it's right in the dead center of the book of Hebrews. That this battle-inflicted church to whom the author of Hebrews is writing is being told that to abandon G Judaism for Christianity means that you now have no high priest. And the author of Hebrews, in, in this really glorious way, is going to argue otherwise. He's going to say, no, if you're a Christ follower, you have the most superior and glorious high priest that the world has ever known in Jesus. 
And so we pick it up in verse 14 of chapter four. It says this, since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Going back to the warning that we just came out of last week, why should we keep fighting the good fight of faith? Why should we hold our original confidence in Jesus firm to the end? Why? Answer, verse 14, Jesus passed through the heavens as our perfect high priest, securing the hope of eternal rest for us. If you're a follower of Christ, that rest is yours for the taking. Passing through the heavens, that's, that's ascension language. We'll get to this in a moment, but that language of passing through brings to mind the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the Old Testament temple, that Jesus has passed through the curtain, so to speak, into the true holy of holies as our perfect, exalted high priest. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the risen son of God. Jesus is alive. We don't just celebrate that at Easter. We celebrate that every day as Cross Point Peachtree City. And not only is he alive, but he sympathizes with us. This exalted God, this exalted priest king sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's not aloof. The God of Christianity is not out of touch with the weariness, with the discouragement, with the temptation that that you and I face. The author of Hebrews, he's really offering us, going back to the beginning of chapter two, this idea, don't drift from Jesus. He's offering us the greatest anchor of hope in the greatest storms of life. He goes on to say in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That going back to chapter two, Jesus's ascension is only possible because he descended, taking on human flesh. He knows everything that you and I experience in our humanness. He was tempted just like we are. He's able to sympathize with us. For those of you music-minded people in the room, maybe you've, you've heard of this, this term before uh, known as sympathetic resonance. It's this idea that, uh, and this is really interesting, if you put two pianos in the same room and you strike a note on one piano, the same note will respond on the other piano without you so much as touching it. That's what the author of Hebrews is communicating here in chapter four, verse 15, that there's no note of human experience that does not resonate with Jesus. That, that Jesus sympathizes with, with you in the midst of everything that you go through. All of the discouragement, all of the weariness, all of the sadness, and, and particularly all of the temptation that you face uh, with respect to the great enemies of the devil, the flesh, and the world that we battle every day in this, this attempt to fight this good fight of faith. We've grown so accustomed, many of us, to hearing that truth that Jesus can sympathize with us that it doesn't wow us oftentimes the way it should, that the God of the universe can sympathize with you. Let's let's slow down for a second and, and just soak that in. The one who holds stars in the sky can sympathize with you. Going back to chapter one, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature can sympathize with you. That's unique to Christianity. And it's quite incredible. Kent Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, whatever we may be going through, there is not a note we can play, not a melody or a dirge, no minor key, no discordant note that does not evoke a sympathetic resonance in Jesus. He mastered the instrument while he was here on earth and he wears it in heaven. Do you want sympathy? Do not go anywhere else. Dare not go to anyone but him. 
And, and let me heap encouragement on top of encouragement. Not only can Jesus sympathize with you, but he also cares for you deeply and wants to help you in your times of need. Look at verse 16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That Jesus wants to help us in our moments of greatest need. And he's the most qualified to do so. There, there's this thought among many uh, in Christian evangelical circles that Jesus can't possibly understand what you and I are up against. That he was filled with such goodness that he couldn't possibly understand the temptations we face. To which I present to you C.S. Lewis's argument in Mere Christianity. He says it this way. I love this. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. He goes on to say, I love this, that is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life, Lewis says, by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus knew of pains that you and I will never know precisely because he didn't give in to temptation. He fought against the great enemy, the great wind of temptation to the very end. And this Jesus is the one who offers you and I mercy and grace in time of need. Yes, we have the bride, going back to, to last week, to, to exhort uh, one another, to encourage one another. We have that gift, the church, to help us fight the good fight of faith. And I'll get there in just a moment as to how that plays into this morning's passage. But we also have the groom, Jesus himself, with us in this fight to believe. He knows exactly what we need in order to fight against sin because he himself fought against sin all the way to the cross. He's qualified to help us and he wants to. He's not just able, but he's willing. He desires to enter into our weaknesses with us. We have the privilege and blessing of a personal and intimate relationship with an accessible God. We can approach his throne with confidence, the author of Hebrews says. We can approach his throne without hesitation. We don't have to approach the holy of holies in fear like the high priests of old. If you go back to the Old Testament um, and, and you, you research the tabernacle and the temple, you, you see that there was an outer court, there was a holy place, and then there was the most holy place or the holy of holies. And these different areas represented different degrees of holiness in approaching God so that only ceremonially clean Israelites could enter the outer court, only the priests could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and that wasn't without stipulation attached. On the day of atonement, the high priest would go in, and he would offer incense and sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals, both for his own sins and for the sins of the people, which would appease God's wrath. The holy of holies was such sacred ground that bells were sewn to the high priest's robe so that people outside would hear him moving around and know that he hadn't been struck dead. You talk about entering God's presence with trepidation. And the author of Hebrews here says, have no fear, Christ follower, that Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection has provided us with the way into God's presence 
and blessing. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you needed to clean yourself up to get your act together before coming to Jesus for help? Anybody ever felt that way? That's an epidemic, by the way. If you've, if you've missed that in the Bible Belt, you haven't been around long enough. I've encountered so many people that, that in a moment of sinful regret, they feel like they have to have a sinless streak before they can approach the throne of grace. The throne of grace. Think about that. Think about the absurdity to that. The, the fact that God offers us mercy and grace is an indictment on our ability to come to him with moral perfection. Mercy and grace are gifts needed by imperfect people. You and I are morally imperfect. However, here's the beauty of the gospel. We can approach the throne of grace. We can approach God's throne confidently because of Jesus's moral perfection on our behalf. He lived the sinless, perfect life that we could never live. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die, tearing the curtain, separating us from God forever. If we reject the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, then yes, his throne is a throne of wrath. God is perfect. He's holy. Sin cannot enter his presence, but his throne is not a throne of wrath for those who are united to him by faith. His throne, rather, is a throne of grace. We're gonna sing these words in a moment, but I don't know if you're like me. There are times when I find myself uh, as the church gathers singing and, and my mind's just disconnected. Um, uh, the words are just coming out of my mouth, but, but I fail to realize the weightiness of the very truths that I'm singing. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna, I wanna just walk us through the words of a song that we're gonna sing as we move toward the back half of this service in just a few moments. And I want you to think about these words in light of this morning's passage. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Goes on to say, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. All, not some, all my sin. Because the sinless Savior Jesus Christ died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And then the glorious verse three, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. I hope when we sing those words just a few moments from now that they resonate even more with you, just, just having walked through them in this moment together. Because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, you and I can confidently, confidently, confidently approach the throne of mercy and grace. As man, Jesus understands our struggles. As God, he can do something about them. And the question for us, as was the question for the church to whom this letter was written so long ago, is this. Are the difficulties of life causing you to draw away from the throne of grace or to draw near? How would you answer that question? Some people have a tendency to retreat not just from the church, though that happens, we tend to pull away from others when things get difficult, but also to retreat from the Lord when difficulties come. Praying ceases. Um, for, for others of us, 
Um, maybe there's a tendency to move toward God with more intentionality, to fall at his feet, to cry out for mercy and grace. Most of us are probably a mixed bag, if we're honest. We have our moments where we run to him, and we have our moments where we retreat. Remember the bigger argument of the book of Hebrews, if you've been around for, for our run at this thing thus far, is, is this. Don't abandon the throne of mercy and grace for some other hope. Jesus is greater. He offers us mercy and grace if we will draw near. And now the author of Hebrews is going to show us yet again just how glorious Jesus really is. You move into chapter 5, those first four verses. Here we get a picture of the Old Testament office of high priest. It says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so you have kind of these indicators of the Old Testament priesthood. According to verse 1, the high priest was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God as a mediator. He had solidarity with the people, you might say. He was one of them. Verses 2 and 3 tell us that because he himself was weak and sinful, he could deal gently with weak and sinful people. He was sympathetic and gracious because he recognized that he was a sinner acting on behalf of sinners. In fact, one of the ways that he would act on behalf of men in relation to God was by offering sacrifices for sins. And not just the sins of the people, but his own sins first and foremost. Verse 4 gives us another significant aspect of the, the nature of the priesthood. The high priest was appointed by God. He didn't appoint himself in ignorance, it was, or in arrogance, excuse me. It was a divine calling. So think about this. We're talking about a man who had solidarity with the people, a man who was sympathetic and gracious toward the people, a man who was humbly appointed by God for his task. You see where this thing's going, right? Verse 5 is going to bring Jesus right into the picture. It says this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews quotes the Psalms to show that God the Father appointed Jesus as our perfect priest king. Having clothed, clothed himself in flesh, Jesus was chosen by God from among men, more to come on, on Melchizedek in a couple weeks, that mysterious figure in all of human history. Um, but suffice it to say for now that uh, where that's going to go is to, to make the point that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. It's forever, verse 6. That if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the story of Israel, every Levite priest had to hand off the priesthood at some point uh, to the next one down the line because every one of them died without exception. Jesus doesn't have to do that. You don't have to worry about Jesus dying in the midst of interceding on your behalf. You don't have to worry about Jesus dying in the, the midst of dispensing mercy and grace to you. You don't have to worry about Jesus dying in the midst of representing you before the Father. He died and rose from the grave never to die again. So that when you sing those words from that, that old hymn before the throne of God, you can mean them and you can believe that there is no end to the truth of those words. Verse 7 goes on to say, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverence in the days of his flesh. Now we we see the solidarity with the people going back to verse 1 of chapter 5. And we see the sympathy for the people going back to verse 2 that the high priest was to have. Again, Jesus was one of us. He took on flesh. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to offer up prayers with tear-filled eyes. Isaiah 53.3 says it so well. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knows what it's like to experience anguish. Jesus knows what it's like to pray in deep need and dependence upon the Father. Jesus knows what it's like to even face death. Yes, his prayers were heard by the Father, but, but not in the sense that Jesus was spared from death by crucifixion, but rather that Jesus was spared out of death through resurrection. As a side note, um, there, there's something in this verse for us, particularly as it pertains to prayer. Uh, for one, think about this. Jesus' prayers were heard by the Father because of his reverence and holiness. When Jesus speaks, you could say, the Father listens And Jesus is your advocate to the Father. That means that we can count on every one of Jesus' petitions on our behalf being heard. That's unbelievably encouraging, people. If you're a Christian, think about this. Going back to um, the the argument toward the end of chapter 1 with respect to angels. Think about this. According to the book of Hebrews, if you're a Christian, angels minister to you. And Jesus pleads for you. I I could literally drop the mic because it's not over my ear this week and we could just call it a day right there. That's unreal. Angels minister to you and Jesus pleads for you if you're a follower of Christ. And the one who pleads for you knows what it's like to be surrounded by everything that makes this world sad. Verse 8. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What, what does that mean? We, we've talked about this before in this series, that Jesus learned obedience. What does it mean? Uh, does it mean that he was disobedient earlier in life? Does, does the fact that he was made perfect mean that he was imperfect somewhere along the way? If so, we're hopeless. His sacrifice means nothing. If so, he's no different than any of the the high priests in the Old Testament who came before him. We talked about that word perfect a few weeks ago. It comes from the Greek word teleao, uh, which means to complete. The idea is not that Jesus went from disobedient to obedient. It's not that Jesus went from imperfect to perfect. Rather, it's that Jesus went from incomplete, in a sense, to complete. Think of it this way, when, when Jesus was 20 years old, roughly, he had about a decade of obedient living to do in order to take a three decades old, obedient, perfect record to the cross on our behalf. It's not that he was ever imperfect or disobedient, it's that he was building a perfect, obedient resume all the way to Golgotha. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, he says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, that he built a perfect record of obedience, of righteousness, all the way up to the point of his death and now can gift us that perfect resume by grace. That Jesus is the greater high priest. Unlike the high priest of old, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He was sinless, which qualified him to be our perfect sacrifice for sin. In other words, we talk about this all the time around here. He didn't just die the death that we deserve to die. He also lived the life that we could never live. 
Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free. Jesus is our perfect, spotless righteousness. He alone is the hope of salvation. He's our great high priest. He's our accessible God. He knows our greatest need for mercy and grace, and he offers it freely. And so the question would be, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, have, you, have you encountered this, this picture of the God of Christianity, a God of, of mercy, a God of grace who invites us to approach his throne because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I would invite, not just invite you, but implore you to, to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ as Savior and King this morning, to run to him, to approach that throne of grace for the first time ever, and to receive his mercy and his grace, trusting in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. And if you are a follower of Christ, there are two responses that a passage like this warrants. As you encounter everything that this passage says about Jesus, number one, Going back to chapter four, verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Going back to last week's passage, unlike Israel in the wilderness, keep clinging to your confession in the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith. Keep clinging to the salvation that's yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. Keep hoping and trusting in Jesus. Keep beholding the beauty of the Savior. The second thing, is this, going back to chapter four, verse 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Don't, don't pull away from him in the midst of present difficulties. Come to him with all of your brokenness, all of your need. He can handle it. His throne is not a throne of wrath for those united to him by faith. It's a throne of grace. He offers us mercy and grace if we will draw near. Let, let me just close out. Uh, I've shared this before, um, that, that I hope that we create a culture in which the leaders of, of this church are not just leaders in, in terms of understanding sound doctrine, or not just leaders in terms of uh, bringing a servant heart to the table, uh, or not just leaders in terms of uh, expressions of radical generosity and so forth and so on, but also are leaders in, in, in leading out in creating a culture of confession and repentance. And here's the funny thing. If you try to create a culture like that, God will, will bring you face to face with it yourself and ask you, you really wanna, wanna create a culture like that? Because you're gonna have to lead out in it. And, and that happened for me this week um, on Wednesday. Uh, the day started off terribly because I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and couldn't go to sleep. And you just, you know the day's gonna go into decline mode at some point when you wake up that early in the day, right? And so uh, it, it just happened to be, uh, the day that not only did I have staff meeting in the afternoon, but I had a meeting with some area pastors after that. And then I had our community group gathering after that on Wednesday evening. So it wasn't a, a day that I could just check out and, and kind of retreat off into the shadows and, and fall asleep and just wake up on Thursday and call that a new day. I had to face some really challenging environments and conversations. Uh, and I won't get into all the details of it, but suffice it to say, it was one of those days that I felt debilitated I felt depleted, I felt discouraged, uh, I felt, in, in some sense, hopeless. And, and I remember, uh, you, you can ask my wife about this, we pulled up in front of our host home to make our way into our community group gathering, and it was one of those, maybe you've had one of these, uh, where we sat in the car for an extra 60 seconds so I could just do this. 
get my extra breath before I step in to have an honest dialogue with, with my community group. And some of you are in that group and you know where I'm going with this. And, and we began to dive into a dialogue in that living room, about a dozen of us. And we talked about this idea of beholding Jesus. The, the author of Hebrews just won't let us get away from it. He just keeps coming back around to consider this Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, behold this Jesus in such a way that he's not, he's not quick to run to the, the application point other than the beholding. He wants us to wrestle with that. What does that look like? What does that mean to behold? Is it a, is it a cognitive exercise? Does it require an attachment of the heart? And, and and how do, we, how do we do that? What does it look like? I've, I've shared the story of my daughter on the beach numerous times in this series, looking up at the moon, beholding. And, and I, I do think it's more than a cognitive exercise because it would have been very different if my daughter looked up and saw the moon for the first time and said, look, Daddy, the moon. And it has, you know, X number of craters and it's X number of miles away from Earth. And, you know, she just started going into to facts, absent of, of wonder, there was something about the wonder in her that, that came out as she saw, she was savoring what she saw in a way that it, it affected her, it changed her. And so we talked in, in this living room on Wednesday night as a community group about what, what beholding really is and, and what does that look like in your life? Where have, where have you beheld Jesus and savored him recently? And, and we closed out our time. Uh, and mind you, I'm prepping this sermon that talks about approaching the throne of grace, that you may find mercy and grace uh, for help in time of need. And, and I genuinely just felt like I was so depleted that I needed brothers and sisters around me to help me to confidently approach the throne of grace, if that makes sense. Maybe you've been there. Uh, if not, I'll call myself the oddball in the room. But, but we had this moment where I, I just had to say, can I sit in the middle of the room and you just lay hands on me and pray for me because I'm struggling to behold this day in a significant way. Um, there is a, uh, an individual element of a passage like this. Yes, let us individually approach the throne with confidence, the, the throne of grace. But can I also, going back to last week, uh, as we talked about the significance of the church in, in beholding Jesus, can I encourage you, as we come out of this time in the scriptures this morning, that you can rally others around you in, in a way that God will use um, as a means of his mercy and grace in your life. And there's some tangible ways to do that. Um, even as I step off the stage just a few moments from now, there are gonna be people in the back of the room uh, who are part of our prayer team who are happy to pray with you to talk about where you need mercy, God's mercy and grace and to seek that throne confidently with you, for you. Um, as we come out of, of this morning, um, I, I think that it would be appropriate for us in the context of our community groups, for those of you who are part of a community group, if you're not, I, please sign up for a group. We'd love to get you connected in this way. But this week would be a great week for us to put the scriptures into, into application, to sit around living rooms throughout this community and to approach the throne of grace, to actually put this passage into practice. And, and if you're going, man, I there's some things that I'm just not sure I can share in a community group setting or that I wanna share with somebody I've never met before in the back of an auditorium after a sermon. Um, but if you're connecting at all with people in God's providence, look around this room, think about this family, this church, and ask the question, who can I go to and say, man, I need somebody to come alongside of me to approach the throne of grace uh, with me and for me. Uh, I need the one another life right now. And, and, and let's see what God might do as we... Um, as we walk in a, in a culture of confession and repentance, in honesty, acknowledging the fact that this is hard. That there are days that, 
that beholding just like we know cognitively, we know what that means, what that can look like, and reality just doesn't seem to connect for whatever reason. But we can, the scriptures tell us, approach God's throne even when we feel that way, and he's ready to dispense his mercy and grace, and we can rally around one another for the sake of that cause. In a moment, we're gonna move into a time of communion and singing and prayer for those of you who who want prayer in the back of the room. Um, Communion is available from this point on through the remainder of the service. Uh, We take the bread here representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Uh, We dip the bread into the cup. We we do that as a a, a remembering of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and as a uh, missional, visible display of the gospel of grace. Um, But before we do that, taking into account 1 Corinthians 11. We want to have a, a place for self-examination to happen so that we can um, acknowledge where uh, the, the misfire, the disconnect is and bring that to the Lord, to acknowledge that in our lives and yet again to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and bask in the beauty and glory of the gospel, everything that Jesus is for us, everything that he's accomplished for us.